Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Gills Talk podcast. Today, we have Gills Club scientist, Dr. Mary Ann Porter. She is studying the biomechanics and functional morphology, ecology, and physiology of elasmobranchs, or sharks, skates, and rays. She is interested in the mechanics of their cartilaginous vertebral columns and the resulting swimming style seen among different species of sharks, skates, and rays. As we will learn throughout our interview today, Marianne likes to look how sharks squish their vertebrae together or how their skin stretches. I love the energy that Marianne gives off. She's just such a bright and exciting person to talk to and learn about her research with. So let's jump right into our interview today with Dr. Marianne Porter. Welcome everyone to another Gills Talk interview. Today I have Dr. Marianne Porter. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for being able to come on this morning. I'm loving your Zoom background with that beautiful tiger shark there behind you. I know this is an audio podcast, but I swear everyone that is listening, she has a great, great shark photo behind her that I'm able to look at. So then to kick off, what is your research? What do you do? That, that's a, a great question. So I have several areas of research that I'm focusing on right now with the Lasmobranchs specifically. I do biomechanics. So I use engineering and physics to think about how animals work and how they're put together. And so with that, with the Lasmobranchs, with the shark skates and rays, I've been working on vertebral columns. So how that vertebral column works, the stretchiness of shark skin and then putting it all together, um, how do these animals swim? So interesting. It's very similar to, oh gosh, when did we have Brooke Fumang on? She was one of our very first episodes. So that is going way, way back on. She also was looking at biomechanics as well. So let's get into, you know, kind of everything that you talk, talked about. Just looking at like the, the vertebra. So let's start with that first. Right. So that's actually where I started my research in elasmobranchs was studying vertebrae from sharks back in the early 2000s when I started my PhD program. And before I started my PhD, I was actually studying plants and I had intended to study um, biomechanics of plants for my PhD. And it was my my PhD advisor, Adam Summers at UC Irvine then, so University of California, Irvine, Um, I had gone to lunch and he had left a vertebral column on my desk thawing (laughs) with like a note that said like dissect me or something. So I I came back from lunch with like, you know, a chunk of vertebral column on my desk and I started dissecting it and I was like, it's sort of like a stem. And, and really, if you think about it, um, if you think about, imagine how a shark swims, it's going to be wiggling its body back and forth. And the vertebral column is going to be a really stiff rod, um, essentially going through that body, just, just like for us, right? It's our axial skeleton. So as these sharks undulate, how their vertebral column work is, is really going to impact a lot of how they're able to, to wiggle their bodies and swim. Mm-hmm. So interesting. So then what sparked you then? Like, was it just kind of dissecting that and being like, oh, like I'm done with plants. We're going into this now. Like what, like, was that then really the seed that really planted that for you? Yeah. So as you're, you're going through school, you know, you just learn more and yeah, I started that dissection and I was like, okay, this is nifty. I can work with this. And 
you know, uh, a lot of people will say what you what you intend to do your PhD on what you start is not how you finish and um, that was very true in my case, you know, I had ideas of what I wanted to do and I ended up doing something very different just because I mean, as we should right? opportunities will present themselves along the way and then you're going to want to take advantage of those opportunities you're not. If you just say no to everything that comes your way because you're like oh no that wasn't that wasn't what I intended to do right you know what they say plans just plans are made to be modified right so yeah absolutely um, <laughs> and so what i was able to do during my phd is start looking at the material properties of the vertebrae so thinking about how they work um i almost think of them as a lego brick so you have all these bricks put together you have the individual components so each individual brick and then you put things together and start to think about how a structure works and that would be the vertebral column so each individual vertebrae, I was actually smushing it and measuring how much mineral was in it, because we think of shark cartilage of their skeletons being made of cartilage. And mm -hmm. we know cartilage as this sort of squishy stuff in our bodies, but it makes up the whole skeleton of sharks. And there's a lot of mineral, especially in the vertebrae. So um, I started looking at, very simply put, I squished them until they broke. <laughs> and, um, and then I would measure how much mineral was in them to sort of get a relationship of, you know, how much mineral and how strong they were. Um, very similar to how we assess our bones. So as as you get older, you go to the doctor and you get a bone scan to see how your skeleton's going, especially, you know, if you're someone who might be prone to getting osteoporosis or something. So we we like to think about how much mineral is in our skeletons and how that impacts sort of the strength and the health of our skeletons. And I started doing that on just the individual vertebrae for my PhD. And then um, after I graduated, I started doing postdoctoral work. And sort of one of the goals of your, your postdoc work is to be able to, um, they always say, expand your toolkit. So think about what are the things you wanna learn? And I had been very much focusing on individual vertebrae up until that point. And so the next logical step for me was like, okay, so what happens if you put those vertebrae together? So then during my postdoc, I started being able to, to bend vertebrae. So thinking about what happens when you put multiples together and then there are those joints in between them and how does that, how does that wiggle around? How do you get a really stiff vertebral column of a mako shark or a really wiggly vertebral column of like, you know, a hammerhead. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's kind of how I started doing that. And then now with our vertebrae project, we've got access to new tools and technology. We can CT scan our vertebrae pretty readily because a lot of research institutions have access to CT scanners now. And so we're able to CT scan them. And where I used to just get a really broad, this vertebrae has 45% mineral. Now I can CT scan that vertebrae and I can look at how the mineral is arranged within the structure itself and really start to think about, okay, here's how the minerals arranged. Mm -hmm. Here's how the vertebra itself operates when I squish it. Here's what happens when I wiggle them together. And then I can start to study swimming in the whole animals and think about what species are going to swim. How are they going to wiggle their body? And then sort of along with that, this actually started when I was in graduate school too, just smushing things. Uh, it's always good to, to stretch stuff too, right? Think yes. about what you can do. And so we started looking at the stretchy bits, the shark skin. And so 
now in my lab, we've been able to spend some time thinking about the stretchiness of shark skin and how those dermal, dermal denticles, the little teeth in the shark skin that make it feel like sandpaper. Mm -hmm. We think about how those denticles and how many denticles there are impact how stretchy it is. So it's almost like a little armor. And you know, if you've ever been to an aquarium, they always tell you to touch the shark like on the dorsal surface from the head to the tail. But if you go to the outreach events or other things and feel other shark skins, you can feel that the, the back of the shark and the belly of the shark are gonna feel real different. And so you can just being in an aquarium and being able to touch a shark can tell that the number of denticles, the number of little teeth in their skin is different. And so now we're trying to figure out how that impacts the way they stretch. And then if you think of the shark skin as sort of a, a compression sock. So if you think about running compression tights or compression socks, if you think about the skin sort of holding that shark in and creating a structure for which the muscles to attach to and work against, understanding how stretchy the skin is can be really useful to sort of think about swimming too. So interesting. I like your analogies that you use there with the pressure sock. Cause it does like, it, it helps it make to be more sense and it, it, it clicks. So I like, that. I am, <laughs> I am not a runner, but my runner friends, um, tell me a lot about their, their quest to find the best running tights and stuff. So <laughs> I, I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. Just like you, your quest for the best shark skin. Exactly. Well, what is the most stretchiest, but I have a couple questions kind of with throughout all, all, all this. My first one, I would love to know then like, well, what minerals are we finding in vertebra of sharks? Right. So it's, I haven't really ex continued to explore this, oh. but it's, <laughs> I was just showing how much there was and how it's arranged, Got it. but okay. we can think of it as really similar to the calcium phosphate that we're going to find in our bones. And I was able to quantify how much collagen is in the cartilage. And then also proteoglycans are the molecules that sort of, they, they look like a little bottle brush and they kind of catch water to keep it hydrated. So I kind of looked at those constituents okay. um, very early on thinking about what, what puts this together, but we actually have some work right now and I do not know the results yet, but we've been able to work with collaborators in our chemistry department here and use different types of microscopy and imaging to start look to look at the elemental analysis okay. of the um the mineral within the sharks uh, the shark vertebrae that's awesome see so you don't always know everything right away oh no definitely it, it, not building block process so thank you for that and then also then like how are we like obtaining these because obviously you just can't examine this from an alive shark, you can say here, let me see your vertebra column. So like, how does one obtain these types of samples? That is an excellent question. And, and obviously a lot of what we think about is conserving the species we study. So a lot of the work I do on the vertebrae and skin is from specimens that have died and we get those specimens from our collaborators. So a lot of researchers do fishing, so they do fishing and tagging projects. Sometimes there's mortality. There are surveys that go on just to understand the numbers of sharks that are around, and there are mortalities with those. And so I will often get coolers or collaborators calling me saying like, hey, we got this thing. Do you want it? And I'm, I would say yes. And I know um, there are, there are quite a few of this, a few of us who do this for different shark parts. And so one of the great things about having a scientific network is 
I want the vertebrae for certain things. There are people who use the vertebrae to study age and growth. If we, if we get a shark, there are people who want the reproductive tracts or the liver. Kara Yopak at UNCW, she always wants the brains for her zombie lab. And so it's really great to have a collaborative network of scientists who are like, oh, Marianne's going to want those, those vertebrae and oh, probably some of that shark skin. And we're, we're always pretty good as community of communicating with each other and getting these specimens, right? Because you won't know until you have the specimen, but it's not like, you know, you want to go out and just collect collect a bunch of a rare species, for example, and be like, okay, now I know how the vertebrae work. There are 10 fewer of these sharks, but you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, but I think it's important to note that, you know, yes, it is sad to see uh, a shark mortality, but like being able to pretty much investigate anything you want to know about that shark. There is, there is a researcher around that is going to be able then to obtain that specimen in some way to be able to learn about it. Cause you know, you can't learn about the spine or skin. Well, maybe you can learn about the skin when it's alive, maybe depending on what you're looking at, but you know, a lot of these things you can't learn about unless that shark is dead. So yeah. Yeah. And and like I said, there's a really, a lot of collaboration that goes along with that just to, to say and make sure that people are getting what they need to do their studies, because we do want to take advantage of all the, all the parts and pieces when something dies. So I sort of say I'm, I'm a little bit of like a, a turkey vulture or something, some sort of scavenger. <laughs> like, hey, we've got a dead fish. I'm like, send it my way, please. Yes. Has there ever been a call about a, a specimen that you've been just completely surprised by that you would have never thought that that would have came through your lab? A few years ago, we were getting a lot of large hammerheads that were washing up on the beaches here in Florida. I mean, not a lot, but we got, we got quite a few. And so you get a random call at like two in the morning, like, Hey, there's a giant hammerhead. And so kind of go out or the grad students would go out and do the measurements and the dissection and then work with the local agencies to get that shark, get the data from the shark and then remove it from the beaches because, you know, they can be quite smelly. Yes, we have um, we have had our fair share of being able to help local people and beaches up here. Um, we had actually just earlier this week, a, a thresher shark washed up and we got the call and then we called the, um, the Apex Predators Lab out of the NOAA lab yeah. in, 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 in Narragansett and they came yeah. out and, and got it. But we helped with a poor beagle last year, a few years ago, we had a bunch of threshers wash up inside of Cape Cod Bay um, when, when everything fro- fro- froze over and they came in with the ice sheets. Unfortunately. Yeah. So it happens even up here. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to call the apex predator lab and ask about that thresher shark. Be like, how did it look? Can I have the backbone? Um, we've worked with them too. They've been able to give us a lot of great samples. And, and in fact, I don't remember what year it was, but they, they had a large basking shark and I actually sent one of my grad students up there to retrieve the samples. And then she was studying pectoral fins at the time. So she was able to do some dissections on the basking shark pectoral fin, which I think they said weighed like a hundred pounds in and of itself. So it took several people to drag it off the beach to get it. So everything we do, uh, it does rely on a lot of collaboration around the world and around the country and scientists helping each other. So that's, that's always good. Mm-hmm. I think that's great with, with all science, you know, you really can't do one thing without those collaborations. Cause it kind of what we, we mentioned earlier, all like ladders and yep. steps 
on top with one another, but then being able to, for what you're doing, I'm sure this is also then maybe a, um, I should say a challenge that you face as a scientist, because you have to wait almost for an animal mortality to happen. So is there, this might sound weird. Is there like a back catalog of like sharks that you can work with, or is it kind of like a sit and wait? Like, how does that work? Well, obviously we get really excited when someone sends us a specimen that we, that we need, but yeah, people send us stuff all the time. So we have freezers that are filled with specimens. My students, we have sort of freezer inventory days, a couple times a semester, several times a year for sure, where we'll, we'll pull stuff out. We'll organize, defrost the freezers. Um, we have dissection days where it's like, okay, we need these specimens now. So then we'll go pull them out and everybody will just dissect together to make sure we're, we're getting everyone in the lab, the stuff they need to, but yeah, we've got, we've got some freezers and then I I do hoard a little bit. (laughs) So (laughs) anytime someone's like, Hey, I have this thing. I'm like, I'll take it. I'll just stick it in the freezer. So I, I have sort of encroached into the freezer space of my colleagues here at the university and they're they're nice enough to to let me do that if, if there's available freezer space and I know about it it could be yeah I, I might throw a box of stuff there <laughs> but I mean it's not like it's it's a cool thing to put in a freezer you know like I I would be excited to say that like this is in there so I think that's I I would be okay with it <laughs> and then sometimes we get things where it's like this is really cool and I have a sample size of one now, but I'm just going to keep it because <laughs> I think it's really cool and we might be able to do something with it. And then, you know, now that we have access here um, to CT scan things more easily, we're like pulling stuff out of the freeze. We're like, oh yeah, remember when we got this? Like, let's send it over to the scanner. It's almost um, like a scrapbook of freezers. You can just go through and have all the, the, the these memories. <laughs> yeah. Or you find something you're like, hey, someone else is studying this now. Like, I'm going to let them know. And like, we can scan it and send people a scan or there's, there's a lot of great ways to collaborate and because these are rare and because we don't know what we're going to get when we're going to get sometimes it is, it is nice to kind of just keep stuff. So I'm okay with the hoarding. (laughs) So with everything you have looked at so far, is there like a favorite thing you've been able to discover or find out about during looking at these scans or squishing or stretching or I've had a few um, things that (laughs) really sort of pop out as sort of those exciting aha moments as you called them. One of them was when I was dissecting a mako backbone, a mako vertebral column. And most sharks I had been dissecting up until that point There are two vertebrae together and it's sort of like an Oreo cookie where you have the two vertebrae and then there's the joint in between them. And the joint is actually filled with sort of squishy fluid and it's all held together with with ligaments. So similar to our body. And I was cutting through the intervertebral ligament of this mako and the fluid inside like seemed like it was under pressure because it squirted out, which was a really, you know, when you're dissecting and things squirt at you, that's always a little bit of a shock. Yeah. <laughs> you're not expecting it. You know, then your hair smells like shark for the rest of the day. Oh, yes. But yeah, it just really made me think and appreciate like how stiff the entire body of a Mako shark is. And it's been one of those things that 
I we're actually starting to look at the joints more now with some of the scanning we have access to. But it's one of those things where if I dissect it to look at it, then it's not under pressure anymore. And so it's it's one of the questions that I am excited to continue working on and find ways to look at because it was just, you know, the scientific method starts with an observation, right? Yeah. So I noticed this thing and I'm trying to find ways to learn more about it with all the different tools and techniques that we're learning and have access to. Mm-hmm. But that was something really exciting that just went back to a dissection of like, you know, <laughs> it squirted at me and I was like, well, that is a surprise. And okay, the other shark vertebral columns haven't done that. So what's going on here? And so that was, that was really fun. And then during my postdoc research, um, when I was bending longer segments of vertebral column, we were also able to measure how the vertebral column was working in little sharks swimming around. And we found that the vertebrae actually squish when the shark swims. So when we move, our bones aren't going to do that very much, right? It'd be very unfortunate if your femur was bending that much when you were walking. So it was really surprising because I was expecting animals move at their joints. That's how it works. Mm -hmm. And then in fact, the joints were moving, but also the vertebrae were squishing a little bit. Mm. And it was such a weird observation. And we, you know, we measured it in the sharks and I had to think about explaining this, like, right? How did this happen? And I was able to think back to some of my early work during my dissertation, where I was just squishing the individual vertebrae. And back then I found that you can squish them quite a bit before they actually break. And so I was able to think back on how far or how much they were able to squish. And then the measurements I was getting in these sharks. And I'm like, okay, this, this might be real. And so then we went back to the lab and did some lab experiments and were able to show the same thing. And I was like, okay, this is, this is weird, but I've shown it a couple of different ways. So it must be happening. And that kind of goes with, we were able to show that the, the vertebral columns of the sharks seem to be working like a spring. So it's really useful for saving energy but sometimes, depending on how fast, how fast the shark is kind of wiggling its tail, it can work like a break. So you've got sort of um, a cool material um, like silly putty, right? Silly putty, if you pull it fast, it'll break. If you pull it slow, it will ooze. That's sort of what's happening with the vertebral column. If you move it really fast, it's going to work one way. And if you move it really slow, it's going to kind of work another way. That's so interesting. Like, oh, science is yeah. so cool. <laughs> but it was, it was another one of those situations where I, I was doing experiments and I was sure I did something wrong. That's usually my first thought is like, that should not have happened. Like something was wrong. And so then, you know, you, you do it again. And if you find the same thing, you're like, okay, this is weird. Did I do it wrong again? And yeah. then you call your collaborators over and you're like, let's do this together. And we all do it together. And they're like, well, that's weird. I'm like, yeah, but now it's the third time it's happened. (laughs) That's how you kind of find and stumble upon those, those new and exciting things, which is, which is always just really fun. Mm -hmm. I I think that sounds fun. I like, I'm about to like come in and like spy on your lab and like see all these things. This just sounds so interesting, but with, I know you have looked at many shark species, but is there one that you would love 
to be able to work with or like studied their skin or their spine? There are just so many. <laughs> yes. If you need like a top three, you can do that. Too. I Okay. Yeah. I mean, sharks are just so weird and diverse, right? And sharks and rays too. I mean, just to be able to see, like while I was diving, I would love to see a Wobegon because oh. it means I would be diving in fun parts of the world. And they're so camouflaged. It would be like an exciting find Waldo moment or <laughs> where's Waldo moment, right? Like I found it, I saw it. And that would be really cool to see one of those out in the wild. But in terms of things that would be so awesome to have in the lab, frill sharks mm. are just super freaky. And I would love to see what their backbones look like. And same with the mega mouth. They're just oh, yeah. really, really, really strange. And in terms of measuring the swimming, I it would be so cool to get like video of Mako swimming in the wild. And mm -hmm. yeah, especially because you said you think they're put under so much pressure and you would think they wouldn't be able to be the fastest shark if it's well, such a tight. No, their their whole backbone is so stiff. It's like um very much like the tuna swimming, right? They swim really fast and they barely wiggle their body. So they're not losing a lot of energy to sort of the wiggles moving around. It's just like very tight, very fast. And Makos are so cool because they have those keels at their caudal fin too. So they've got those weird sticky outfits, those keels. It's almost like a boat keel. Yeah. Um, and so that's, oh, they're so much cool about them. They're, they're probably my favorite shark. So <laughs> I love anytime I get to work with them. Yeah, they are very cool. But I think to wrap up our interview today, I would love to hear some advice you have, especially since you know you started with plants and now you're with sharks, the complete opposite of what you were intending on thinking about what you were doing throughout your career. So like, what advice would you have for that plant lover, Marianne? <laughs> so I would just say, always take advantage of your opportunities because you don't want to discount yourself or tell yourself you can't do something. And, and if an opportunity presents itself, then give it a try. That's, that's sort of always, always my thing is, Hey, this cool, cool opportunity popped up. I'm going to go do that. And it's really great. And especially as students, it's great to feel like I really want to study sharks. That's my end game. But it's a long journey. It's a path to get there, to get anywhere in your career, right? Especially when you're young, right? You're, you're not supposed to have the whole path planned out and, and you can try, like I said before, you can have great plans, but they're probably going to change. Mm -hmm. And that's just the way it is. So I think really figure out ways to train yourself as a scientist. Where can you get those first research experiences? What can you do to sort of build your toolkit and start building your toolkit with these scientific opportunities that will help you along your path. Because work that I did in my undergraduate and master's degree was when I was studying plants. Those are things that taught me how to be a scientist. They taught me how to read literature. They taught me how to do experiments. They taught me how to do statistics. So those are all, all part of my path and really good. And then if I had to give <laughs> probably a single piece of advice to myself, plant liver Marianne, I would definitely be to spend more time learning coding because everything about life is so much easier if you can easily code. So 
um, collecting data, designing your experiments, designing your equipment, analyzing your data is so much better if you learn how to code. And a lot of us have sort of this image of what a biologist is. It's the person who's always outside studying that thing they study, but sure, that is the fun part and what we all enjoy doing, but there's the lead up to that. You do you need to build yourself a piece of equipment to do that experiment. You're going to need to know how to do that. What happens after you've been outside and collected this amazing data? You're going to have to analyze it somehow. And being a really proficient coder, coder would have been uh, something I'm still working on. <laughs> and that's, I think, a theme with a, a few of the scientists now that we've had on with this podcast. So I think if anyone's been listening since day one and you're trying to get into science, I think you, we all know by now, code. Get into I mean, <laughs> there are so many opportunities in elementary schools and middle schools and high schools now. So like definitely take advantage of that as early as you can. And it might seem like it's not going to help you, um, especially if your, your end goal is to be a shark scientist. You might think that's not a path, a step along the way, but it will make your life so much easier as you're going down that path to have that that ability, right? Because you want to just kind of accumulate skills and that is a really useful skill. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So before I let you go, social media is for you or your lab so people can stay in touch and learn more about the stretchiness, the squishiness of everything that you are doing. Yeah. So um, I'm probably most active on Twitter and you can find me at, at Marianne E. Porter. I, I tweet a lot of science content an uh, assistant editor for the journal Integrative and Comparative Biology. And so I'm, I'm like tweeting stuff that we have going through there and yeah, stuff that comes across from Gills Club and, and other Sharky related organizations. Definitely keeping track of all that, but it's a good place to find me. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for coming on. I thoroughly enjoyed learning more about what you do, being able to learn more about shark spines and how they move. So thank you. Yeah. And you can stop by the lab anytime. Oh, yes. We'd love to have you. <laughs> Perfect. It's nice and warm down here right now. So yes, you know. yes. much colder here. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Gills Talk podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and review. And as always, remember to stay curious, stay inspired, and always learn. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye, everyone.